As my favorite anarchist, Henry David Thoreau, once said, things don't change, we change. Chuck Yates here inviting you to the Digital Wildcatters Conference Evolve, the next evolution of oil and gas. March 10th, brought to you by Technique FMC. Sign up now at digitalwildcatters.com. Let's be the change. What's going on? Are you okay down there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm alive. I was uh, I was sitting there, my screen froze for just a second, and I was going, "Ah, shit, really?" (laughs) Talk about this. Talk about that. Chuck Yates needs a job. I had a point. I don't know where it's at. Chuck Yates needs a job. So, all right, let's set the stage here. So, Chuck Yates needs a job. The podcast. We have Marty Bent on today. We're going to talk Bitcoin, all this good stuff, but uh, we need some mea culpa, dude. Come on, man. Lay it on us. Why are we here again? Hand up. I fudged up. I fudged up. I'm sorry. (laughs) I've been in this podcasting game for almost four years now, uh, and uh, I made it like a, a critical podcaster mistake, which is don't forget to put your SD card before you hit record. Uh, it's pretty essential to making sure that the the audio that you uh, <laughs> that you t- intend to record actually gets saved in in some fashion, so you can actually uh, upload that data to to the internet, so people can hear it. Uh, forgot to do that. That's on me. Like I was saying before, we hit record on on this take too. Uh, of course, I got a whole new desk setup, new audio setup, and it's one thing. Tales from the Crypt, the other podcast I host about Bitcoin. Uh, it's been a audio has been the bane of my existence. Like I have a bunch of audio files who listen to that podcast and first three years of TFTC's existence has just been nonstop complaining about the quality of the audio. So I got this whole new setup and I, I, I mentioned it on tales from the crypt a couple of weeks ago. Hey freaks, uh, our audio problems have been solved. And of course within a week I fucked it up. So I'm sorry. Yeah, no worries. The uh, at some point, because I'm, as I like to say, I'm in the luxurious penthouse suite in downtown Richmond, Texas. Um, unfortunately, we have a train that comes through downtown Richmond, and it's literally been a passive aggressive fight for like 50 years. The mayor, we had a mayor for 64 straight years in this town. Wild oh. story. Wild story. He, uh, his dad was mayor. His dad passes away in office. The town elders didn't know what to do, so they went to the local barber shop and just swore Hilmer in as mayor. No election, no nothing. It's just that's what they did. Hilmer, you need to be mayor now. So they did that. Uh, but anyway, Hilmer had this running battle, I believe, with the railroad company about whether we needed to put the arms up, you know, so that cars couldn't drive across. And so there is somewhere in the manual that it says, as the train goes through downtown Richmond, you have to press on the horn. I mean, the conductors today probably weren't even born when this came in. <laughs> this, this was put in. But at some point, we will just have a horn blasting through here. So anyway, that will be my audio screw up on it. So plus I'm down here in the south and it's like 18 degrees. And so they're going to shut my power off at some point. You know? So we'll, we'll screw this up. We'll have take three tomorrow. Yeah, we're all worried about you guys up here in the Northeast. You get you get a little dusting of snow, and it seems like an apocalypse now. Like, what, what the hell is going on a, down there? It's a Kevin Costner movie, man. It's the end of <laughs> it's the end of time down here. We don't know what to to do with this, but uh, 
why don't we do this since we're going to kind of have this weird convergence of audiences i'll go first real quick what my background was is i ran a, a private equity oil and gas fund for 20 years it was think early stage assets we do kind of the first drilling of a horizontal well in a county that was sort of our uh, our shtick and uh anyway had a uh, had a fairly rough 2019. No one kind of clued me into the fact that NGL prices were going to drop by two thirds. So uh, come COVID, I got the boot. It did make the Wall Street Journal though, so I got that going for me. That was kind of cool. Yeah, I'm sitting there looking at it. Actually, it was a decent picture too. There's so many pictures out there that make me look like an ass that I was like, thank goodness. But uh, yeah, no. So anyway, I've been hanging around gainfully unemployed thus the name of the podcast chuck yates uh, needs a job so my kind of background think of me oil and gas guy texas guy wear hoodies a bunch i uh i kind of got called the other day the matthew mcconaughey of the energy business which was really fucking cool i was like I oh that that's way. awesome yeah yeah kind of motivated me to go lose 20 pounds but uh anyway i'm on that so marty what's your background Tell uh, tell uh, all these folks down here in Texas and Oklahoma freezing our butts off about you. Yeah, like I said the first time I record, I've had an interesting decade in my twenties. Uh, so I started out in Chicago studying economics at the Paul University, which parlayed into an internship at a managed futures fund, uh, which was a fund of funds where we packaged commodity trading advisor commodity trading advisors into uh, 40-act mutual funds, essentially, um, and other types of funds. I parlayed into a full-time job as an analyst. And, and so basically my job there um, was to, uh, as an analyst on the portfolio management team, basically follow markets, particularly currency markets, commodities markets, uh, treasuries, equities, now, was this, was this principal stuff or were y'all doing it on behalf of clients or was it kind of both? Yeah, kind of both. The fund started uh, as simply our CEO, president, trading his own money, and then sort of opened it up to to outside investors, to LPs. Um, uh, after I believe like a decade of trading his own money and having a strategy that that seemed to work. So, uh, yeah, we 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 um, managed individual um, high net worth individual money. Um, gotcha. Uh, yeah. So yeah, we had, we had a class of managed futures funds that, that packaged, again, CTA. So we basically indexed CTA tra traders into a family of funds. And again, they, so I had to, yeah, studied economics, was really enamored with uh, monetary policy and, and central bank policy. And so the nature of this job followed uh, a lot of central bank announcements, reading a lot of their tea leaves. And uh, as a young 22-year-old, 21-year-old came to realize that the central banks really didn't <laughs> have much, uh, didn't really know what they were doing. At the end of the day, they were sort of sticking or throwing shit at the wall to see what sticks uh, in terms of monetary policy. And, and they're always backpedaling, uh, setting projections and targets and never hitting them. And uh, same time learning about commodities markets, about that sweet crude in Nigeria, uh, the man drivers in the oil and gas market specifically as well. Um, and uh, three years, combination of being an intern and, and a full-time employee. Uh, I decided the cube life wasn't for me. I, I did not like doing the same thing every day, uh, 
crunching Excel sheets and pulling data from, from Bloomberg terminals using MATLAB and having the same conversations basically every day. And as a young 22 year old, who's also falling down the Bitcoin rabbit hole at the same time, I was, I was that analyst at the fund screaming, we should be paying attention to Bitcoin and buying Bitcoin. And I just got laughed at the whole time. So I decided to leave that to learn about, um, uh, software. It was when like tech was huge in that in like 2013, 2014. Uh, like it was, everybody was starting a startup. We work was just starting to blow up and I decided to learn like how, how the hell apps were made. So I took a digital design bootcamp to introduce me to front end development and, and UX design. Um, and wound up moving to New York after that, uh, where I took a job selling offshore software services, took that job to learn about backend development. I learned front end uh, at the design bootcamp and wanted to learn more about what was going on the back end. So I had that job for about two years. Um, and then I, same thing, did not like that job, did not like the cube life uh, and quit thinking I We're was- We're developing gonna... a pattern here, but keep going. Yes, I thought I quit thinking I was gonna be able to get a job pretty quickly. I was very confident in my abilities living in New York City, jobs are bountiful. Um, and, and I was like, yeah, I'll just quit and get a new job. And it took me two years to find another job, which, uh, was, was very interesting. And wound up uh, getting married in, during that two year period too, which like means I have a, a wife that loves me truly. She's not in it for the money. Um, but yeah, she towards, bought low. She's a value investor. <laughs> she bought very low. She bought at the lowest point. She bought, <laughs> I got to a point where, where, <laughs> where I tried to get a job walking dogs and I couldn't put a particular leash on on a fake dog correctly so i did not get that job that was the lowest part of, uh, of unemployment. Uh, i'm, I'm be, sorry i'm sorry to laugh dog walker i'm sorry to laugh but you know i'm kind of at the point in my life where i'm going to move back in with my parents before i get another job i'm not even going to have the humiliation of trying to put the leash on <laughs> you're in good company here Yes. Well, during my unemployment, it was, it was uh, fruitful in the sense that I was able to focus on learning about Bitcoin, understanding what was going on there. Um, had some Bitcoin and obviously was very passionate about it. So in 2017, as the price of Bitcoin started to go crazy in the beginning of the year, my friends and family knew me as that Bitcoin freak. And so they were all starting to text, email, call, smoke signal me um, to learn and teach them about Bitcoin. Uh, and so I got overwhelming. At a certain point, and like right after my 26th birthday, I was like, all right, I'm going to start this newsletter, this daily newsletter called Marty's Bent. I'll try to uh, inundate you with a little bit of, of Bitcoin information slowly but surely every day um, so that you come to better understand it. I wound up starting to post the links to the newsletter on Twitter, uh, and it took on a life of its own. People outside of my family and friends group started reading my stupid thoughts about Bitcoin and liking them, shockingly enough to me. Um, and then uh, I actually wound up brushing elbows with somebody from Barstool Sports, who I noticed was tweeting about Bitcoin uh, and reached out to him, was like, hey, we'd love to talk and just walk you through what's going on here. I, I think you're, you're, you're getting into this and need to know some information. So I met up with him uh, right across the street from Barstool's second headquarters in Flatiron in the summer of 2017. And we sat there and chatted and he convinced me to start a podcast, which is Tales from the Crypt. And so I actually met the first job out of unemployment. This guy pulled me in as a sales rep for, for podcast sales at Barstool Sports and luckily gave me a job uh, in the fall of 2017 after having started the podcast on the side. 
So I worked at Barstool Sports selling podcast ads, learning about the business side of this media juggernaut. Um, and then when everybody went home, I would I would record episodes of Tales from the Crypt in the studios when, when nobody was in the office. I would have my guests come at like 10 p.m. at night uh, to record like two-hour episodes. We'd get drunk and talk about Bitcoin. Um, and then got bored of selling podcast ads at Barstool Sports, believe it or not. Uh, and, yeah, I can and, see that. And luckily, uh, the team I'm with now, Great American Mining, they, they found me via the podcast and the newsletter and let me know about their crazy ideas about Bitcoin mining. And obviously, it's something I'm very passionate about. So I jumped the pirate so, ship for, for Great American Mining, which is uh, another pirate ship in its own right. Uh, I've been doing that for the last, uh, geez, almost three years. Uh, flown by um as well as the podcast and the newsletter that i that i keep up every every day well do do this kind of um because my audience there are a lot of folks i mean out there that know a lot about bitcoin so i don't want to bore them but at the same time my mom listens to this and so and this is explain yeah exactly sally uh explain to sally what is bitcoin give us the overview all right, Sally, here's, here's I'm going to break it down for you. Bitcoin is a peer-to-peer -peer distributed cash system, digital distributed cash system. That digital is, is probably an important descriptive there. Uh, it is basically a, a new monetary system and payments network that competes with central bank and government-issued currencies, uh, particularly uh, from a, a scarcity and distributed control perspective. So... U.S. dollar controlled by the Fed in conjunction with the U.S. Treasury. Uh, those the few people that run those two, uh, the, the central bank and the Treasury Department, uh, have a lot of uh, say over how much U.S. dollar dollars are produced and distributed to the market and what the interest rate is uh, at any at the, the Fed funds rate, particularly at any given point in time. Um, so that's a very centrally controlled monetary system that that sort of doesn't respect. It doesn't sort of disrespect it overtly disrespects uh, individuals ability to save value over time uh, particularly in cash they are expanding the monetary base at insane at insane pace and insane rates and uh, this inevitably diminishes uh, us dollar holders uh, purchasing power over time bitcoin alternatively has a very scarce supply there, there will only ever be 21 million bitcoin so bitcoin the bitcoin network has taken the other side of that bet and says, hey, um, uh, if you don't want to use these these currencies that central banks are continually debasing, come use Bitcoin, which has a 21 million supply cap and will never be debased due to its distributed nature. So individuals like yourself, Sally, if you decide to download the Bitcoin software and myself and, and your son, Chuck, who I will have downloading the Bitcoin software at some point in the near future, uh, we are... Uh, in control of this network the individuals are there's no janet yellen or jerome powell to dictate what happens in the bitcoin monetary system it is controlled by nobody and everybody at the same time in the sense that everybody is keeping the rules on on software or hardware that they own um and and, and i guess another important aspect of bitcoin to mention is that it is a digital bearer asset so you actually if you take possession of your bitcoin uh which it, which Bitcoin enables, the Bitcoin network enables, you actually hold that asset, you own it, you possess it, you, you have sovereignty over the, your money 
uh, in the digital age. So there's no bank account for a government to go to and shut down. No, no funds can be pulled from your Bitcoin wallet without you pushing them out. Um, and, and so this uh, is a revolutionary technology that I'm pretty boned up about, I think is going to uh, be pretty popular and, and, and be more widely distributed and adopted as time goes on. So, so like to, to summarize it down more so to make sure I understand. So, so basically we're going to have 21 million of these Bitcoins um, out there. Um, we needed computing power to generate those 21 million uh, mm -hmm. coins. And so basically the decentralization is the folks that contribute the computing power to help create those 21 million in effect, get the Bitcoins and can use them for currency. Is that kind of right? Yes, yes. Um, the miners were expending uh, or converting a bunch of energy into hashes to add blocks to the Bitcoin blockchain, which is the ledger uh, of the Bitcoin network. Um, they are rewarded with Bitcoin um, for, for expending that energy, um, but they are not the only stakeholders. Uh, there's developers, um, users like yourself and I, we can actually keep, keep the mining industry in check too by making sure they, they follow the rules set forth by the network. So miners, extremely important stakeholder in the system, but um, not the only one that add to its distributed nature. They're, they're sort of checks and balances between the stakeholders um, that, that naturally incentivize that the network uh, hardens the, the consensus rules that, that everybody uh, agrees to, mainly being there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. Blocks will come in on average uh, every 10 minutes and um, people should be able to download the software on, on hardware they can run at home. And, and so you've got basically in effect, tell me what a Bitcoin wallet is, just so I understand that. So again, like the fact that Bitcoin is a digital bearer asset, you could take possession of it. So a Bitcoin wallet essentially at the end of the day is what's known as a private public key pair. Um, you produce, you use cryptography to create a, a private key, uh, which is a, essentially a secret that only you know. When you create a private key, the way it's created, uh, the chances that anybody else would create a private key uh, exactly like yours are so minuscule. Like, a, like there, there, there are, there will be more, I believe the potential, the amount of private keys that can be developed using the cryptography that creates them in Bitcoin. Uh, there, there's more, is more than there are atoms in the universe or something like that. So the, the probability that two people create the same private key is infinitesimally low. And so when you create a private key, that is essentially the, um, the, secret password that allows you to access your Bitcoin, which are held in a number of public keys associated with that private key. Um, so that is what a Bitcoin wallet is. You, you create a private public key pair. Your private key gives you access to your Bitcoin, which are held in the public keys associated with that private key. And so the, is it the fact that this blockchain, which is basically you know step by step of everything being created, is it the fact that that's distributed on or every computer that has access um, to the to the blockchain? Is that really what 
decentralizes it, meaning we can wipe out these 50 computers, but it doesn't matter because there are these 10,000 computers over here that have access to it. Is that exactly? Is that kind of the, the guts? Okay. It's like a hydra. You can gotcha. You can try to cut off one head, but many more will grow in its place. And Bitcoin being a distributed system that is distributed geographically all over the world uh, to shut down the network. You literally have to go to every household running the Bitcoin software on, on personal hardware and have them unplug that logistically at this point, uh, I would, I would confidently say is impossible. So is it true that the network has to be bathed like every three weeks in the blood of a virgin sacrifice? Is yes, that true? This is, this is true. <laughs> um, it, 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 it uh, proceeds on, on the blood of sacrifice and, and the, the boiling of the oceans. It's imperative <laughs> if we're going to make Bitcoin run. It 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 amps up when we uh, bring the blood of a Federal Reserve Board member <laughs> in. Is that the... Yeah, that's the sweetest type of blood you can get for the Bitcoin. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Blocks every two minutes, not 10. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so that's kind of the guts of it. I, I mean, I think I understand that. You know, give me give me one or two kind of wild stories about people forgetting their password or just just some or you know 50 cents getting paid give me give me two wild uh bitcoin stories uh, i mean so these stories go all throughout the news uh like time and time again what it usually is like oh my gosh i was mining bitcoin on my my macbook back in 2011 2012 and i had 10,000 Bitcoin just sitting on it. And I can't access anymore. I don't remember you know, the encrypted password. I mean, this came up and wired recently. Um, one gentleman, what you'll come to find is like back then, Bitcoin literally had no value. And people didn't like think. Right, yeah. Actually, people didn't actually think to secure their keys. Um, and so like the media will run with and be like, oh, this is a huge tragedy. Look, it's easy to lose your Bitcoin. But in reality, uh, back in those days, people didn't think Bitcoin was going to be anything. So they didn't care to actually take good care of, of their private keys and think it was that valuable. Um, so I think these stories will become less and less throughout time. But like, I mean, the most famous one is somebody who did this. And I believe their mother wound up throwing out one of their like old MacBooks. And, he, and he's literally uh, been known to like go to like a, a garbage dump searching like like a, that episode of <laughs> Philadelphia when they're when they're climbing the the junk uh, in the garbage yard like he he went attempting to find his his laptop that his mother threw out and did so unsuccessfully um so make oh, wow. sure you hide the the hardware that your your bitcoins are living on from from your mother who who has no idea what's going on Sally do not throw out any of Chuck's laptops okay that's the one good thing you don't have to worry about uh, with Sally is cleaning up or throwing out trash. But <laughs> so my my <laughs> love Sally to death. By the way, she's the best person on the planet. She really is. Like I could literally be caught by the police standing over the dead body with the gun in my hand. It's smoking and my fingerprints everywhere along with a recorded video that my mom would be in court going, he did not do it. I, he was with me at the time. So love, <laughs> love South. So my Bitcoin story to that point is my son, like early days on Bitcoin, had the computer in the house mining Bitcoin. 
you know, and so dad was sitting there paying for the electricity. Obviously, he's doing this unbeknownst to us because we like had a hardcore rule. He could not be out on the Internet just as a young, you know, a young male can't be out. on. Of course, he just totally ignored that. Yeah, it's a very dangerous place. And he, of course, ignored that. He's out mining Bitcoin. And there was actually a 2015 Houston Chronicle article talking about him and interviewing him mining uh, Bitcoin because he had told the the VC uh, guy that lived three houses down that he was mining Bitcoin. And they were talking about it all the time. And so anyway, this venture capital partner in a firm and my son are Bitcoin mining in my house, unbeknownst to me. But Charlie decides he needs a fake pair of Yeezys to be cool. And I forget what the number was, but make up a number, 10, 15, 20, 25 Bitcoin, whatever it was that back in you know, 2014, he bought the, the Yeezys with. And uh, yeah, so I hear time and time again about how, uh, yeah, dad, I should have held on to that. You think? <laughs> is there some expensive Yeezys? And this is a lesson everybody learns. Like I, I spent Bitcoin back in the day on shoes as well, not Yeezys particularly, but uh, like turned into a very expensive pair of shoes over time that's what it's a lesson you only learn once and hopefully charlie has learned his lesson and the stacking sets and, and holding holding his bitcoin um waiting for market forces to take over uh, and what did the two pizzas cost the first commercial transaction was it like 900 bitcoins or something Ten thousand. Um, 10,000 Bitcoins. Oh two Papa John's pizzas for $10,000, send them to somebody uh, in Florida. Um, and Laszlo gets dumped on about uh, for this a lot. Uh, the fact that he sent all this Bitcoin for two pizzas today, 10,000, it's in the billions of dollar range. Um, I'm pretty positive. Right, times 45,000 or wherever we are today. Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of zeros there. A lot of zeros, but Laszlo, Laszlo's doing fine. He's still around. I think, uh, I don't think he's struggling at all. Uh, and, and that's, it's a shame that that is the story that, uh, that people point, point to and know Laszlo for. Yeah, so there, I wish I had 10,000 Bitcoins and did not spend them on two pizzas, but Laszlo is actually very integral in the Bitcoin space. He, he was back in the early days building out the network with Satoshi when he was still around and Hal Finney and others and actually. He uh, coded up the first Mac OS implementation of Bitcoin so that Mac users could download the software and use it, use it on their computers. So beyond uh, being most famously known for having one of the first like, commercial transactions, spending 10,000 Bitcoin for two Papa John's pizzas, uh, he's actually contributed like some crucial code to the, to the protocol as well. Oh, that's cool. And, you know, to some degree, I mean, it's better to have a cool story about yourself than money too. There are only so many things you can buy with it, right. you know? So. Yeah, and like I said, he's still around. Um, he actually, so Bitcoin has a second layer network that um, called the Lightning Network that is allowing people to send transactions quicker and cheaper um, and, and send smaller amounts uh, so that they don't have to deal with the 10 minute block times at the uh, protocol level and the fees that come with sending transactions at the protocol levels. And he actually bought more pizzas. He, he was the first person to buy pizza on the lightning network as well to prove that, that it worked as a, as a, as a tech being built on Bitcoin. Oh, that's cool. Double down on the bad story. That's just yeah. epic. Just be belligerent about it. So, all right. So I got a story here and there's a point to it. I promise. Um, so when I was at rice, 
uh, had constitutional law from Gilbert Cuthbertson, Doc C, my favorite professor. I learned more from him than, than any other teacher I had. I use his theories of myth power value literally every day, you know, in my life. So, and I'll change the name to protect the innocent, but we go into class the first day. I sit next to John Smith. Doc passes out the, the syllabus and starts talking about what he expects. Literally five minutes into class, John Smith gets up and leaves and doesn't show up for another class all semester. Um, we go in and lo and behold, the, for the final exam, he shows up. So I was like literally sitting next to John Smith. We take the final. And the way you always got your grades from Doc is he would eat lunch on campus every day. So you'd go wander by where Will Rice College, where he would eat lunch. And you'd say, Doc, if you graded my test yet, what did I get? So anyway, John Smith and I just happened to walk up to Doc the same time at lunch and like going, hey, Doc, how'd I do? You know, what'd I do on the test? And Doc, and Doc was funny because he was deaf, but I think it was selective hearing. You know, we've always, <laughs> we've always thought the ultimate lesson in myth power value is going to be at the reading of Doc's will. It's going to say, I could hear all you fuckers. You know? <laughs> but but uh, so anyway, we, you know, we walk up, Doc's kind of, oh, brother Chuck and brother John, how are y'all? And we're like, Doc, how'd we do on the test and all? And he goes, well, you, brother Chuck studied i could tell so i'm not surprised that you made a 98 and that was tied for the highest grade in the class and i go oh cool doc thanks and then he looks at john smith he goes brother john you never showed up i checked with the bookstore you didn't buy the books so you didn't read anything having to do with any of this i am shocked that you were tied with mr yates at a 98 for the high grade in the in the class and john goes oh okay cool and doc goes pray tell can i ask how you do did that and uh john was just like doc it's constitutional law man the feds always win and so, <laughs> <laughs> and doc, doc was just stunned for a second he's like you're right every court case i asked about the federal government won so i tell that story one just because i love doc c stories but when I look through Bitcoin, that to me seems to be the big risk is that, you know, you sucker punch the Fed, right? And the Fed wants to come back at you. And do they, I mean, I know that when China banned Bitcoin, I mean, it, Bitcoin lost half its value. You know, it's obviously regained it since then. Do, do we have Do we have worries potentially that the Fed has long enough reach given the U.S.? the dollar is in effect the world's currency that that it could be game over for bitcoin because of the fed i don't think so i, I mean i think they could certainly <laughs> no uh, awesome. but no. again like the, the distributed nature of bitcoin it makes it extremely resilient and robust and if you're going to attack it you're going to need uh, cooperation of not just our federal government, but federal governments around the world. Uh, and our federal government alone can't even agree on a budget. Um, and obviously there, there are very strong conflicting geopolitical forces that exist in the world that um, would lead to a jurisdictional arbitrage. Um, but again, like, yes, I can certainly try. And I won't be surprised if they do try here in America, if they ban 
exchanges from allowing their customers to take custody of their Bitcoin. They ban exchanges from even allowing their their customers to to buy Bitcoin. If they they ban exchanges, or if they like Robinhood did a few weeks ago, just force the exchanges to sell uh, their customers Bitcoin on their behalf without without the customer being able to do anything about it. Um, wouldn't be surprised if any of those things happen, but like you mentioned with the China ban, China's banned Bitcoin like a million times in the first 12 years that it's been around and it's been pretty ineffective. Uh, again, the, the nature of the fact that the protocol is distributed and many individuals around the world had the software on hardware that they control, uh, they'd have to go door to door and unplug that, that hardware. Uh, and then on top of that, many people uh, that are into Bitcoin do take possession of their keys. They they use the uh, utility of Bitcoin, actually take possession of it and, and bear the digital asset that, that they store their wealth in. Um, and so the amount of Bitcoin that's cumulatively locked up in all these exchanges is far less than, than are in uh, individuals' hands. And so... If the U.S. federal government, for example, was to come in and uh, try to ban Bitcoin, I think the most, like the the largest effect it would have on the network and Bitcoiners within America would just be driving it to the dark market, similar to what the drug war did. But as we all know, the drug war was pretty ineffective. The price of cocaine did not collapse. The the access to cocaine did not collapse. The the trade of cocaine did not collapse. Uh, probably increased um, significantly just because it was something the government said people couldn't do anymore. And I think you'd see a very similar situation play out with Bitcoin. So, I mean, me making this up, listening to you, having not really thought about this, I mean, the worst case for Bitcoin is somehow they get rid of every computer except one because they're not going to get rid of all of them. But worst case is you got one computer that has uh, the blockchain running on it, and you've got Pablo Escobar, for lack of a better description, sitting on top of it that says, you have to come to my island. You got to have your password. And I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, make you pay me a tax or a toll. But oh, by the way, I got a lot of dollars and I'm going to hand them to you. So you're, you're smuggling bills back in to the United States, potentially. Not that that's the preferred route for Bitcoin, but ultimately, if they try to go after it, right? Exactly. That's what you meant, basically, by the dark market. Yeah, and you don't even have to smuggle them back. Like I said, like m- most individuals possess their private keys, um, or most large holders of Bitcoin, uh, or most p- individuals who hold large amounts of Bitcoin, possess their keys to some regard, whether it's a multi-sig setup or a single key setup, they don't have to smuggle it back in the border. They already have it. Like you can hide, like that's the beauty of Bitcoin. Like I said, the private key uh, that gives you the the ability to, to release your Bitcoin to the network, to spend it, uh, that can be represented by 12 or 24 words um, known as a seed phrase. So hypothetically, I'm not going to do it because I've had six concussions throughout my life and don't trust my brain, but you could memorize those 12 or 24 words that represent your, your private key and walk around the world naked with Bitcoin in your head, unless the, the government can literally torture you and take your thoughts from your mind with some technology that may or may not exist right now. Uh, right. The, the, the ability to actually seize that Bitcoin is, is, is extremely hard. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So what else, what else are kind of negatives when it comes to, uh, to Bitcoins? Cause I mean, I totally see the positive side of it. I mean, at the end of the day, when you look back at monetary history, right. I mean, gold didn't have some unique utility except for the fact that maybe the queen thought it was really pretty to be hanging around her neck. But outside of that, it didn't have some magical, it was just that there was a finite amount of it generally available. And so to some degree, it made sense that that stored our value just because of the finite nature. So I get totally the value of Bitcoin being capped at 21 million, only going to be a finite you know, amount of this sort of stuff. I mean, I think when we talked a couple of days ago, and I didn't, I should have checked on this fact, but I've, I've read it a couple of places, literally 37% of all the dollars printed in the history of our republic have been done in 2020 i mean my god you know the um the the m2 money stock and this so this is so this has really sent me down an orange pilled me about bitcoin again working at that managed futures fund and and following central bank policy like if if, if we even back up to 2008 it's insane like so what the Federal Reserve started in 1913, and the monetary base is represented by the Fed's balance sheet. Like how much, how many assets have they bought from the banking system, from the primary dealers that have access to their windows throughout time? And so, from 1913 to right before the bailouts of 2008, their balance sheet expanded from um, from zero to 800 million dollars, or excuse me, 800 billion dollars over 95 years. Took 95 years to go from zero to 800 billion, and after 2007, 2008, and QE one, two, three, infinity started spinning up over the course of six years between 2008 and 2014, uh, they expanded their balance sheet from 800 billion to 4.2 trillion. So they they five x the balance sheet. What took 95 years to go from zero to 800 billion took six years to go from 800 billion to 4.2 trillion. So like the the balance sheet expansion has been ridiculous over the last 12 years. And again, last year with the, the demand shocks uh, and the, the shocks of the job market that, that the economic lockdowns uh, sort of brought to the market and cited the Fed and uh, the Treasury and the fiscal side now is actually adding to this uh, to, to turn the money printers on again. And like you mentioned, they, even after that insane expansion after 08 they, they added more than 30 percent to to the monetary base and m2 money stock in, in one year just as you know so believe it or not the spot i am sitting in right now used to actually be at one point part of ron paul's congressional district Boss. and we should have yeah. listened to ron paul yeah ron paul's right and ron paul for all his rantings about the Fed and the like, I mean, I think his bottom line ask was pretty fair. Can we just have an audit? Right. I mean, is it just okay to send somebody in there with a flashlight and tell us what's in there? Well, uh, and that's I completely agree. And it's insane when you think about it, that the the individuals at the Fed will not let this happen. Like, they, Because if, again, like uh, Henry Ford, he had a, his famous quote, like if the the citizens of the United States knew how the banking system was run, there would be a revolution by the morning. Uh, and that's why you can't audit the Fed. You can't know what assets they're buying and who exactly they're giving money to and how that money is being 
allocated to the people who receive it from the Fed. Because again, if you knew, you'd realize how completely unfair the system is. Those at the top with access to the Fed window, uh, they they benefit uh, massively from that access, while everybody below them actually is is harmed uh, due to the, the the fundamental nature of the way money is produced and distributed throughout our economy, starting with the Federal Reserve. Um, and actually, one of my favorite Bitcoin memes, I don't know if you remember, I believe it was in July of 2011 or 2012. No, no, excuse me. It was like 2016. Um, July of 2016, a gentleman was uh, sitting behind Janet Yellen um, at a congressional meeting and he held up a buy Bitcoin sign. Um, oh, yeah. He's actually a friend of mine. We call him Bitcoin sign guy in the Bitcoin world. I have a couple of interviews with him on my podcast. Highly recommend you go check them out. But the long, the, the, what I'm trying to get to is that on Bloomberg, at the exact moment he held up the buy Bitcoin sign, that's why it's one of my favorite memes. Like the, the Janet Yellen was being grilled. Uh, I believe some um, conservative congressmen were asking her whether or not like we could audit the Fed and like, and she had just answered like, no, like, we're not going to let you audit us. And it said yelling, uh, uh, not open to the Fed being audited. And then you have my buddy, Bitcoin sign guy in the background holding up by Bitcoin, unbeknownst to him that this ticker oh. or, or this headline was running on Bloomberg at the time. So the juxtaposition of buy Bitcoin versus you can't audit the Fed is so poetic and so beautiful because, again, Bitcoin's an open source protocol that anybody can audit. It's audited every 10 minutes, every time a block is is added to the network. My node that I run on my computer is making sure that that new block of transactions is following the rules and, and it sort of recalibrates the ledger internally on my computer and I'm auditing it every 10 minutes. Uh, and that's what Bitcoin offers and juxtapose that to this Federal Reserve system that, that they'll, they fight tooth and nail to make sure that you can't audit it at all. Yeah, I had a statistics professor back in the day in college that said, if somebody won't give you their raw underlying data, they're lying to you. It's just that simple, you know? Yeah. No, no, no scientist would ever deny, here is my raw data, you know? They may not agree, with, you may not agree with the assumptions or the calculations or whatever, but like that's, I mean, that's Sir Isaac Newton 101 of science. You always give your raw data to everyone, right? Yeah, that's um, Dr. Saifedina Moose, who wrote the Bitcoin Standard, which is like one of the most famous books on Bitcoin out there. I highly recommend you read it if you haven't already. Uh, it's like one of the lines in the book is like, Bitcoin is the only source of objective truth in our world today, uh, and which if you actually think about it and dig deep, he has a good point. Like, uh, the, Bitcoin network is objective truth that's copied on hardware around the world and audited every 10 minutes. Uh, and, and there's literally, you know exactly what's going on within the network. Um, and you can, you can verify it yourself. You don't need to uh, trust anybody else to do it for you. You can do it yourself and find the truth that lies within the Bitcoin network, which is represented by the balances of who owns what Bitcoin at what point in time. So kind of on Bitcoin, we're at, I, I haven't looked today or last couple of days, but I think last thing I saw was call it $45,000 per Bitcoin, something like that. Up a little bit, right, $48,700 right now. Woohoo! But so one, your opinion 
and I can guess what it is, but is it too late? Did we already miss the run? But is there something fair to the criticism? And I don't have these stats. You probably, you obviously will, but there's only so much quote unquote public float of Bitcoin, right? And, you know, 90% of it held by 2% insiders or something to that effect. You can straighten me out on the numbers here in just a second. But the point just being is, is when this goes wider, when the 21 million are out there, when folks die and their children are liquidating their estates, i.e. Bitcoin is more out there, is it still going to be worth $48,732 or whatever you just quoted at me? I think that's be worth much more. Um, yeah, there's a, a, a lot of people like to point at Bitcoin, oh my gosh, we think inequality is bad now. Like, look at the the concentration of wealth in very few Bitcoin wallets. Uh, and, and what people don't understand is that sometimes, yes, there are individuals who hold some individuals out there will hold hundreds of thousands of Bitcoins themselves and they're insanely rich um, and they will be insanely rich if Bitcoin continues to succeed. Um, but a lot of the wallets that people will point at uh, with this particular criticism happen to be exchange wallets that represent hundreds of millions of, of users that, that actually have a claim to the, some of the Bitcoin in those wallets. So in that regard, it may look like due to the fact that, that there's a large number of Bitcoin in, in a very small amount of wallets it's like oh my gosh individuals control this bitcoin but uh, really if you if you peel the layers back and um, do some analytics uh, on the network you'll find that they're exchange wallets again that represent bitcoin for for hundreds of millions or not hundreds of millions of people um and uh on top of that the there is again the beauty of the blockchain is that you can see uh, when when you have Bitcoin in a public address, it's represented by what's called an unspent transaction output. And when you actually spend Bitcoin, what you're doing is you're using a, an unspent transaction output, which is known as a UTXO, as an input in another transaction. And when you do that, you can see how long it's been since that Bitcoin's moved, how many blocks. Uh, and throughout time, uh, people uh, like the uh, companies like Unchained Capital have have done analysis on this and they, they have a a series called hodl waves which i highly recommend anybody go read to to understand uh, uh what's going on with with big holders and it basically proves that over time as the price of bitcoin goes up a lot of these big holders wind up selling bitcoin uh, to lock in some gains which helps distribute the the uh, supply of bitcoin amongst more people over time so actually bitcoin has become uh, the supply is becoming more distributed over time if you if you actually understand what's going on um, and, and how that's happening. And uh, to answer your point of like, will it stay at $48,700? Like, no, I think it's going to be significantly higher. Bitcoin's binary. It's either worth $0 or it's in total market cap or it's worth hundreds of trillions of dollars in total market cap. And as we stand today, we're at about $900 billion in market cap. And so I think there's significant upside. I think Bitcoin will be significantly more valuable in the future in dollar terms um, and, and in purchasing power terms. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting for my audience, at least being a bunch of oil and gas guys. I think one of the things we appreciate that the rest of the world doesn't is, you know, the price of oil is denominated in dollars. So our whole careers, we kind of understand 
falling value of the dollar, oil prices go up. I mean, you have periods of time, five and seven years where, you know, 95% are squareds when it comes to correlation between the inverse correlation between the dollar and the price of oil. So I think that hits home with a lot of people. The, the one interesting point, and I won't name who said this, but we were in a clubhouse room the other day and we were just talking about it. And it was a, uh, a former CIO of a big healthcare chain, a really smart person who probably mid thirties, who actually sat there and said, hey, I hear all you old oil and gas guys talking about oil being the, bit, the best inflation hedge. You're talking to a bunch of uh, uh, CIOs and money management manager types that have never seen inflation in our whole careers. We don't even know what it is. We don't believe that it's necessarily going to happen. Yeah, you're going to quote stats to me about, you know, maybe the CPI doesn't measure inflation correctly, but we don't see it. So I've teed you up. <laughs> I'd like to have a conversation with that CIO. Uh, I mean, we see it in asset inflation, right? Stock markets at all-time high, real estate values at all-time high. It's people, wealthy individuals typically. And again, this exacerbates the, the wealth inequality problem, pushing their wealth, their dollars into assets like stocks and real estate in an attempt to to chase yield and and, well, Chase yield secondly, firstly, to preserve their purchasing power over time. And so you have a completely, I would say, manipulated market, manipulated at its core by the Federal Reserve, where it's basically forcing flows, asset flows into financial assets and real estate assets uh, by the wealthy to, to, so that they can preserve purchasing power. If you look at PE ratios, like stock market really doesn't make any sense right now. Like valuations and the fundamentals are... Are not connected at all. I know some people argue they never are, but it's gotten very far off track. And then, like you did mention, I would argue the CPI does not measure actual inflation uh, well at all and underreports inflation significantly, especially over time. Other uh, inflation index providers like Shadow Stats and Chapwood Index, they may not be perfect, but I think uh, they, they do a better job of of taking a basket of goods that that your everyday American will wind up purchasing and interacting with over time and, and sort of indexing the, the price of that good and the change of that price of those goods over time, whereas the CPI has things like hedonic adjustments and they, they switch out different goods for, uh, to they switch out like rough rice for steak or rough rice for pork pork to to make it so that the inflation comes in at the targets that they're setting um and and the seasonally adjusted cpi figures again is i think if you actually look into it and understand what's going on in that particular basket and how that index works there's a lot of manipulation going on in the background and then you just go and ask anybody like have you seen prices increase over the course <laughs> of your lifetime like that's uh, one of my favorite stories to tell them my podcast is the fact that I worked at a hot dog stand uh, by the ocean for eight summers. It was my summer job from 13 to 21, uh, from 2004 to 2017. And, um, or not 2017, right? It was yeah, I was about to say, we've, we've missed, yeah. you, you're, you're mixing the dog leash with the hot dog, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I worked <laughs> there for eight summers. Uh, and, 
Um, and you know, I can't do math in my head. It was like 2010, 2011. Uh, and the price of a hot dog when I first started working was two bucks. And now like today, it's like close to five bucks. That's right. 150% inflation over the course of 16 years, 17 years. Um, well, I mean, it's the, it's the history of every fiat currency. And to me, this is so obvious and it sounds, you know, condescending as hell for a fairly well off guy to try to say to poor people, but it's, you know, at the end of the day, the political class has the incentive to buy you off, you know, send you direct payments, et cetera. And the way they finance that is they issue debt. And at some point, the only way you can get out of debt is to run the printing press, right? Print money. That's the only way you can pay off the debts you've accumulated. And that is a direct wealth transfer from basically all of us to rich folks that own the assets you were talking about earlier, stocks, houses, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There's a term for this. Your audience hasn't heard it yet. The Cantillon effect, C-A-N-T-I-L-L-O-N. Um he was an economist, French economist, who basically described this dynamic. Like if you have a centrally planned monetary system, uh, the way our central banking system set up, like it is going to lead to inevitable wealth inequality. It gets exacerbated to, to crazy levels. And then that's one thing I parrot very, very often on my podcast is that the fact that in this country, particularly in America, we'll just focus on where we live because we can speak about it pretty confidently. Like people have been giving a false box in which to like debate where their strife comes from. Like it's red team versus blue team, liberal versus conservative, and that's a distraction at the end of the day. I mean, I think South Park hit hit it on the nail. You're you're voting between a douchebag and a turd sandwich at the end of the day, and it really the the focus from the media class and the political class to have people fighting liberal versus conservative is misdirection from the fact that what's driving a lot of the inequality in our lives today and what is actually the source of most of our problems uh, is the fact that we fucked up the money. Like we need to fix the money to fix the world. And that's never brought up as, as a, as a point from which to, to debate about whether like that's where our, uh, problems are coming for it's always red team versus blue team what are the republicans or democrats saying who's on which side is is the evil person nobody ever focuses on the money how it's created how it's distributed and how those particular dynamics drive inequality in our society so the podcast that's probably going to drop after yours um it's kind of a neat deal i had two guys that always go at it on energy finance, Twitter, BRB and quick draw. And I say, guys, they could be females. I don't know because uh, uh, we did this all in direct messages. We just emailed for about two or three weeks and we're transcribing this and we've got voice actors that are going to play. Uh, we've actually got an, anon uh, an EFT anonymous person playing another anonymous person. So anyway, <laughs> it's, you know, talk about a clusterfuck anyway but um now one of the points that was made in that discussion between a very very conservative individual and a very very liberal in individual which goes to your point and i think it's a really good one is look i think antifa blm folks are crazy i think proud boys kkk those folks they're all crazy 
read their rhetoric though they're saying the same thing yeah they're they're saying the problem yeah they're saying the problem that you just pointed out it's this economic disattachment whatever you want to call it i mean you can say what you want about trump he was on to something there is this sense that you know the american dreams being taken away from from you know historically i could give it to my kids slightly better than i had it myself and that's going away and you know both sides are saying almost exactly the same thing yeah bitcoin fixes this chuck that's what this there is you go. i was extremely pessimistic before i found bitcoin it was very I think I mentioned this in our first take. I just had my wife crying at brunches when she would come visit me in Chicago because I'd just be like a doomer. Like, oh, it's all fucked. The monetary system's fucked. Like, there's no way out of this except for inflation or mass default. And Bitcoin provides a lifeboat, a pressure relief valve, and an alternative that any individual can willingly opt out into. Excuse me. You can opt out of the current system to a certain degree and start opting into Bitcoin and start building out a more fair monetary system for the digital age too like like it it is possible people are doing it more and more people are doing it every day and i think it's inevitable like we live in the digital age we live in the information age like it just makes sense that we have a native digital currency uh and and all the better that it isn't controlled by any central authority that can debase the the um, legitimacy of of this digital currency this is a paradigm shifting technology that is not only going to change the world already is changing the world and for the better, like it provides a, a very, very great source of optimism for our future. Like I, I agree with what you just said. Like at some point in my life, like I didn't, it wasn't like very much looking forward to having children because I didn't think I was going to be able to leave the world uh, in the, in a better uh, place than I found it and was born into it. And not until Bitcoin came around that really seemed to be like a possibility in my mind. Well, dude, take us to Great American Mining. What is that? What are you doing with that? Because, uh, you know, we could sit here all day. Uh, you know, you had me going down like three different paths. So like, well, I got I to gotta let Marty talk about what he's doing because the energy get, folks are going to want to hear about that. But then you had me going there for a second where we needed to talk about as soon as uh, this pandemic's over, I got to go to a Cure concert and make out with a golf chick at some point. Because <laughs> we were kind of, we kind of going to that dark place. And so so uh, that would have been cool. But then I've got a 14 and a half minute uh, stump speech about that son of a bitch Nixon taking us off the gold standard in 1971. But uh, the uh, let's talk great American mining. So what are y'all doing there? Nixon took us off the gold stamp standard temporarily. We're still in that temporary period. Um, great American whip, mining. Whip inflation now. What was it? Yeah, whip inflation now, I think. Yeah. When? Yeah. It's all bullshit, man. You <laughs> can get away from these guys with Bitcoin. So great American mining. Um, we we are Bitcoiners at heart. Like, like, uh, obviously, as your listeners may be able to tell by this point, I'm pretty passionate about Bitcoin, pretty confident about Bitcoin. And I uh, had dedicated my life to it. Um, and one way that the Bitcoin network can become more robust is by geographically distributing hash rate. Um, so you want as many miners, again, going back to the distributed nature of the protocol, you want to make sure people are mining all over the world. And, and here in North America, we, we, could, we could serve to bring more Bitcoin mining uh, over to our land because uh, it would help distribute the network. Um, and so Great American Mining, we're 
put simply, we're a Bitcoin mining company. Um, and so we, we want to contribute to the Bitcoin network by bringing hash rate over here to North America. But we also want to run a profitable business and, uh, and, and stack a lot of Bitcoin. And the way that we're afforded that opportunity um, is by partnering with oil and gas producers that have waste gas, whether it's flared, um, typically it's flared, mostly flared, um, or, or shut in. Uh, we, we go to them, we say, hey, instead of flaring that, why don't we engage in a, in a joint venture or we'll do just a simple offtake agreement where we'll buy the gas from you at uh, a price that's above zero, but cheap enough for us to mine profitably. And we'll use that gas to, to power generators that uh, powers our miners that mine Bitcoin. And so we, Bitcoin miners are highly incentivized to drive their, their cost of power production down as low as possible. Um, so that they could be competitive and, and mine throughout the ups and downs of, of the Bitcoin price movement. And that's really the that's really the one part of the chain, right? I mean, the the hardware that actually mines, yeah, it'll get better and that, but that's a commodity that any miner can buy. And so really it is kind of just your cost of power, right? That's the big differentiator. Yes. And then with the mining hardware specifically, there's some timing magic that you need to work into it because the, the hardware is very reflexive with the price of Bitcoin. So you need to sort of time when you buy that hardware so that you can buy it low and plug it in and then um, just have a, a lower cost of capital to, to get your payback period down as low as possible. Yes, the main driver of the capital outlay in Bitcoin mining is, is the cost of power production. So again, miners are incentivized to, to drive their cost of power production down as low as possible and the waste gas situation here in the United States provides a, a great opportunity um, to, to find cheap, cheap energy. Um, so that's what we do at Great American Mining. We're predominantly up in the Bakken right now where fl flaring regulations are extremely strict. Um, so we, we go to producers and say, hey, we'll help you reduce your flare so you can keep your, your drills or excuse me, your wells producing um, and uh, in moving oil to market. And uh, we find that they're Plenty of producers who are, who are happy and willing for us to come in and, and take that that nuisance gas off their hand um, so that they don't have to flare. You know, and uh, I say this to my brethren out in the uh, oil and gas world, and I think they all know this, but you know, I'll tell you the last five years at um, Kane Anderson out raising money, the whole thing of ESG is just something we need to kind of pay lip service to, whatever. Uh-uh. It is real. It is real and it's here to stay. And uh, Dan Pickering, who, you know, Pickering Energy Partners, well-regarded uh, oil and gas investor, uh, he was in a clubhouse room the other night that we were talking and he made a point that I don't think I fully appreciated. I always said ESG is real and it's going to be here forever. Dan said, not only is it real, it's going to be here forever. The market has chosen it. This isn't imposed by the government. I mean, you have companies mandating this. You have investors mandating this. And there is a tidal wave there that outstrips just government regulatory type stuff. And so the last thing I'll, I'll say uh, about this is literally people are getting asked on the road today when they're out you know, doing investor relations type stuff. And everybody's doing it by Zoom today because of the pandemic. But 
you know, quote unquote, being out on the road talking to investors. Investors in Boston and New York are starting to ask the question of public oil and gas companies, how much are you flaring? And to the extent you're flaring oil and gas as a public company, boom, you're, uh, they're, they're dumping your stock. So this is not something that, that's going away. No, and that's right. And that's the beauty of Bitcoin mining using these, these molecules that would otherwise be flared. It's a market-driven solution to this problem. You don't need the government to step in and, and force your hand in, a, uh, in one way or another. Like the Bitcoin, the natural incentives of the Bitcoin mining industry have, have led us at Great American Mining and many others here in North America to this opportunity the way it's just because again, it presents us the opportunity to mine very cheaply. And this is something we, one of our theses at Great American Mining is that there's a budding symbiotic relationship between the Bitcoin mining industry and the oil and gas industry. Both are making each other more resilient and will make each other significantly more resilient over the course of the next few decades. Again, because uh, we believe that oil and gas producers are gonna realize the opportunity that presents itself, the opportunity mainly being that you can take this gas that you were literally setting on fire and was a cost on your operations and turn it into a significant revenue stream, a revenue stream that's driven by a service that has completely different demand drivers than, than your, your uh, bread and butter, which is getting oil and gas to market. Uh, and uh, the demand is the service you're providing is um, adding blocks to the, the Bitcoin blockchain, which is demanded 24 7 365 people are sending transactions at every moment of every day on the bitcoin network so uh, again we believe that the the budding relationship is going to make both the bitcoin network and the oil and gas industry more resilient and it's actually going to change the dynamics i know it's it's a, i'm a bitcoiner i'm a boy from philly coming in and saying that the, the dynamics of the oil and gas industry are going to change significantly because of Bitcoin, but we truly believe it. The opportunity cost adjusts significantly. Uh, like, again, we talked about on take one of our podcasts, uh, like arguably the, the amount of misallocated capital in the shale industry is, is massive and embarrassing to a certain extent. And a lot of that's driven by the fact that years ago, a lot of people in the oil and gas industry took out loans, high interest loans in some cases, uh, and projected that they would be able to pay back those loans because a barrel of oil would be above $80 or $100 at certain points. That's simply not materializing today, obviously. Um, and so their producers are trying to make up for that lack of price appreciation in the crude markets with volume flows to market. Um, and that obviously led to a lot more drilling over the years and if you have a demand shock like we did last year uh, it, it proves that you're you're pretty uh susceptible to to very this was a large demand shock but uh you, you get punched in the face and and have a crumbling effect on the industry to some extent and so if you're able to take again something that was otherwise a drag on your balance sheet and your operations and turn that into a significant revenue source to supplement your, your delivery of oil and gas to the market, uh, maybe it leads to different decisions out, out in the well pad. Maybe you don't drill as many um, wells. Maybe you don't build a pipeline to get gas to market. Maybe you don't invest maybe. in LG units. Like, so it, it, it could help 
uh, the oil and gas industry become more resilient in the fact that it, it misallocates less capital, it becomes a more efficient cal- capital allocator at the end of the day. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, and there are a whole host of challenges that when you're out talking to oil and gas guys, you're going to start hearing about, you know, uh, the Biden administration and their ban on federal lands. You can't, I mean, I think they totally misappreciate the thing. Well, you know, okay, we're going to stop drilling for 60 days. Well, if I can't get a right away, that well I just drilled, I can't get, I can't get the, uh, you, you know, you, you're not going to let me flare, which, hey, that's a good thing. Oh, by the way, I can't build that pipeline because I can't get a right away anymore. There are going to be a whole host of those uh, issues that it's 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 going to be more robust than just, hey, we're going to take a, an expense and turn it into a revenue stream. It literally may be, this is the only way I'm going to be able to achieve any value for some of the acreage I have out there. Give Give kind of the audience some sort of sense, though, uh, you know, maybe we come down from 25,000 feet, uh, but just some sort of sense of what kind of economics uh, are available on the projects you've looked back. Talk either in converting dollars to MCF of Bitcoin or talk payback periods, however you want to do it, but just what, you know, if somebody's out there going, man, I got some stranded gas or I'm flaring this, what? What should they be thinking about in terms of maybe something they could do with it? Yeah, so we actually, we have a product for you at Great American Mining. We built a gas to hash calculator that helps you uh, sort of uh, illustrate and, and visualize the opportunity that, that using your gas to mine Bitcoin provides. So if you go to our site, gam.ai, G-A-M.ai, and you go to our gas to, cash, gas to hash calculator, uh, we have, you can plug in, um, basically a few metrics uh, about about your particular operation and, and pick a, a mining uh, uh, model and, and see how how much you would get uh, compared to sending your your gas to market at Henry Hub prices. So I'm looking at it right now. The example we're using is is a well that produces 500 MCFD. Uh, the BTU to scuff is uh, 1100. And uh, current net back is 50 cents per MCF. And we're using the What's Miner M20S to mine. Um, uh, with these particular metrics, you plug that in, uh, you can get a miner a mining operation up and running. Um, find the capital outlay here real quick. Yeah, so the estimated capital requirements for that is $3.425 million. That'll, that'll, generate $427,856 in monthly gas revenue, um, which equates to $25.93 per MMBTU um, or $28.52 uh, per MCF. So that's 674% higher than Henry Hub and at, at a dollar per MMBTU metric and uh, 5,604% um, greater net back using this gas to, to mine Bitcoin. And that's based on 48,730 Bitcoin, or what are you using for the price of Bitcoin? In yeah, that? so we pull, we pull the, Just current. the Bitcoin stats live, yeah. Gotcha, that's gotcha. current prices. Gotcha. Current difficulty, current hash rate of the network. And, and, you know, any sort of like real world boots on the ground type issues with this, I mean, 
do, can you put a miner out in West Texas where it's 110 degrees? Can you, you said you were up in the Bakken. How does it do with, you know, minus 15 degrees in North Dakota and that sort of stuff? I mean, it's been, uh, it's been an interesting weekend. We've had to, um, we've had to derate some of our generators due to falling uh, pressure, but that hasn't, we haven't had to shut down operations fully at all. And that's actually one of the beauties of what we're doing in the miners produce a lot of heat. So you can actually, these containers are, are pretty hot out there when they're running. And so even when it gets really cold, you can uh, control the airflow within the unit and, up, and how much you send outside to, to sort of keep it on. It comes down to like the generators being able to stay up and um, we have systems that alert us when, when generators are losing pressure and we can have people go out there and, um, and service them to make sure that they're up and running. Sometimes we do have to, to go to like a third, third of a load um, just to, to make sure we can keep it up and running. But they're pretty resilient. Um, and, and so that's in the cold weather. Uh, in the hot weather in West Texas, like you mentioned, it gets extremely hot uh, in the summer. And these machines, like I just mentioned, get extremely hot themselves. And uh, so to get into West Texas, we believe at Great American Miners debates in the Bitcoin mining industry about the best way to, to break into the Permian, uh, particularly West Texas. And we're pretty confident at GAM that, that we're going to need to build and design a, a cooling liquid immersion system uh, so that we dunk our, our miners in, in cooling liquid and are able to control the heat dissipation uh, more granularly. Uh, we don't think that you're going to be able to run uh, miners chugging at rates that you want them to be uh, in the middle of summer in an air-cooled unit. So we're working on an immersion design and we're pretty confident we're close to, to nailing that or at least getting our first iteration out the door. And so we'll have more um, in the field data in West Texas, hopefully in the next few months. The, um, you know, it's, I've actually gotten this fundraising email and it truly is happening that one of the big environmentalist uh, groups is out basically taking satellite photos of the United States, particularly at night, where you just see all of this flaring and you see the Bakken lit up like a flame. You see West Texas looking like, you know, a bonfire and, and the like. And so, I mean, the pressure on that front's not going to get any easier. It truly is so no and and again this is like a market-driven solution we're very excited about the next decade next two decades we're very early days in in this this whole budding relationship and again like you mentioned people are are noticing that this is a, the esg mandates are starting to be market driven not even driven by regulators and then uh, the drive for profits is just going to force this this relationship to get stronger over time because like why why would you waste this gas like it is like it's, a, it's something it doesn't make any sense especially and that's the, the beauty of what bitcoin network provides the bitcoin mining industry specifically is like bitcoin miners are willing to show up to the source and consume that energy bitcoin miners are often referred to as the energy consumer of, of last resort we will come and find and consume that energy that is stranded because it typically tends to be significantly cheaper than on-grid energy. So we'll say, hey, instead of flaring that gas, even if we do an off-take, if we just do an off-take agreement, we'll pay uh, 
we'll pay 50 cents and uh, we'll, we'll use that to mine Bitcoin. Um, best case scenario for producers, we enter in a joint venture um, and do a revenue split on the Bitcoin mine and say, hey, like, hey, let's do something with this gas. We'll bring the mining expertise, maybe some capital. You bring the gas, maybe some capital, depending on which producer you're working with. That, that rev split sort of shifts depending on who brings more capital. And let's, let's mine these Bitcoins and get some value out of this gas. Well, that's really, uh, that's really interesting. It's good stuff. The, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the joke I have on almost all my podcasts are like the digital wildcatters lawyers are asking me to say, and the big joke is the digital wildcatters have a lawyer. <laughs> I don't even think they, <laughs> I don't even think they know what a lawyer is, but, uh, no, I was going to, I was, uh, I, I was going to say, uh, at the end of the day, we just, now we had you on, we, uh, we met online and this has been fascinating. And so I don't own any of your company. In fact, I've never even had a portfolio company do anything with great American mining. Uh, but, uh, I just thought you had a great story to tell and that's, uh, that's why I'm glad you came on. It was really cool of you. Oh, I mean, like I said, Chuck, I'm using you. To help bootstrap yeah. our, our game podcast. No, I mean, yeah, this is again, like, I, I truly believe in what we're doing. And the, like, and again, what it's becoming glaringly obvious that the PR, from a PR perspective, the, the tides need to be turned in the oil and gas industry. Like, and I think this, what we're doing to, to help producers mitigate flare and, and not waste gas is, is a good honest first step forward to say hey we're, we're trying to tackle this problem uh, we're, we're doing this we're reducing flare by mining bitcoin we're becoming more profitable and again once you play out the secondary and tertiary order effects of of the, the ripple effects that this could have on efficient capital allocation within the industry you can make the argument that hey this could lead to less well drilling this could lead to less pipeline construction this will this will be better off for the for the environment at, at in the end of the day, um, if you if you actually play out how uh, in your mind how this could progress moving forward. Yeah, no, it makes it makes a lot of sense because at the end of the day, there are always two kinds of environmentalists. There's the absolute, and you're never gonna you're never gonna appease those folks until they get to fly around on their private plane and all of us have to walk. <laughs> so that. That's when John Kerry will finally be happy. But with, I think, the vast majority of environmentalists, as well as just Americans in general, man, if we can just get better every day, that's, you know, that's the, the key to it is just like we have been. We've done, a, I think, a pretty good job of making the transition to natural gas from coal. And that's certainly make, made the, uh, the world a better place. But every day, if we can just tackle these problems incrementally, I think uh, I think we're going to be better off. But before I let you go, you got to tell me about your playlist. And I kind of hit you with this because uh, we've been doing this on the podcast for about four or five episodes now. And it's actually pretty cool. We've had uh, what we'll do is we'll post the, the playlist. And I think I emailed you. Hey, dude, bring a playlist onto the podcast. And you're like, aren't we going to talk? Isn't that what a podcast is? <laughs> but, you know, now it's it's, you know, I have one guy. Uh, the last podcast, Bomber, who gave me a two-hour and 15-minute podcast, he said, why don't you put it on next time you're on your Peloton? And I nearly passed out. 
uh, you know, I've had people do, you know, a couple of songs and, and in between. So I kind of charged you with that. Tell me about your songs. What are they? Why'd you put them on the list? Yeah. First song is uh, Fela Kuti, Water No Get Enemy. Just incredible vibes. If you're ever looking for a great Saturday morning, Sunday morning music, uh, Fela Kuti, Ethiopian jazz artist uh, and revolutionary, as, as we described the, the first take of this of this rip. Um, it's just really high energy music. Uh, I, I grew up listening to jazz with my grandmother. And, uh, and so found fella, I think, randomly like a few years ago and just fell down the rabbit hole. And it's just incredible music. And, and he was a ref- revolutionary and, and uses music to sort of uh, uh, rally the troops around him in Ethiopia. And it's uh, dope music, really good and underappreciated, I think. Um, I, I, I consider myself a music guy. I'd never heard of him before. And uh, I've played the song, I don't know, 20, 25 times since you emailed to me. It's yeah. it's good stuff. I could see, uh, you said Saturday, Sunday morning. Um, I could see it first date music too. That'd Put that good. in the back. Put that in the back for over dinner. Yeah, if you're looking to impress that guy or gal you're going on a first date with. You know, ooh, ooh. I, I need all the help I can have, get. Have you ever heard Ethiopian jazz? Are you a big Ethiopian jazz fan? Let me show you this song. <laughs> They won't be expecting it. I can tell you that. There we go. There we go. Second song. What was number two? Yeah. Wow Freestyle, uh, J-Rock and Kendrick Lamar. Uh, Rap. Let's throw some rap on here. The song particularly, Wow Freestyle, uh, makes me think of Bitcoin. I like to play wow when when the FUD is high, people are hating on Bitcoin, saying that it's never going to succeed, that it's doomed to fail, that the government's going to shut it down. There's one line in particular towards the end of the song where J-Rock says, uh, fuck your plan, I'm going to burn that castle. It's like murder when I say go. And that perfectly describes Bitcoin. Like uh, These central planners, these politicians, these reserve bank uh, members may have plans from their castles. Uh, they, they want to tell us plebs, us average Joes, how the world's going to work and how it's going to play out. And Bitcoin shows up and says, fuck your plan, I'm going to burn that castle. It's sick murder when I say go. There's nothing you can do about the fact that I exist uh, and uh, people are naturally going to adopt Bitcoin and it's going gonna, it's gonna to burn down their castles. So that's why I wanted to share that song with you and your audience particularly. As a Bitcoiner, uh, I felt it was my duty to get some, some Bitcoin rap propaganda out there. I like it. I like it. The, um, now, the ne- so uh, the next song, again... It's it's kind of made its way into my play over and over again stuff. So this is this has been cool because I never thought a, a guest could come on and introduce music to me, but I'm uh, I'm really impressed. Yes, millennials are more impressive than than the mainstream media gets its credit for. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Third song is by a band called Night Moves out of Minnesota. They don't leave Minnesota too often. Um, I was lucky enough when I was living in Brooklyn to catch them around the corner from my apartment in Williamsburg. Uh, actually, the last live concert I saw before all this shit went down. Um, and the song I picked from them is called Colored Emotions. And it's just a great song. And again, I was describing it 
they have like a southwest rock vibe um like all the music videos feels like they're shot in new mexico or something like that and it's just a very uh incredible lead singer uh just good good guitar bass drums very simple um but not like any modern band i've come across i found them like four or five years ago and they're all their albums are are dope and i can say from experience that they are uh just as good if not better live than them recorded um they, they put on a really good live show if you can go see night moves they don't tour often obviously covid nobody's really touring but if we get back to a touring uh situation I, you go seek them out and go see them live screw it i said we just have them come play the next uh digital wildcatters eft party um they they the digital wildcatters guys threw one about three or four weeks ago i didn't go because i'm still trying to be covid safe and all but hopefully this summer this fall we get past it and uh and uh we'll take take tell jake and colin that they need to uh to hire those guys to come down from minnesota to play the uh party yeah they've been doing some like live shows at instagram they're pretty good but i would yeah i think they would fit in well in texas i think uh Again, they've got that Southwest vibe. They dress the part. They sound the part. Uh, and if they do come play a digital Wildcatters party, I will be there just because I love seeing them live. Perfect. That'll be cool. I'll get to meet Marty, you were cool to do this, man. Oh, you were cool. Again, you responded to me. Yeah, that's, that's a, true. Like, that's- I reached out to you. I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate that you answered our cold email so thank you for having me on and letting me spread my dumb bitcoin ideas to your audience i know um, i'm interested to see how they're received the uh everything i do in my life is so that my 18 year old son will just once say god dad that's kind of cool and i've had that <laughs> i've had that uh i've had that moment a few times and so being able to say yeah man i was just hanging with the tales from the crypt dude you know I think I might get that. Uh, hey, Dad, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I hope Charlie's a freak. Charlie, if you're listening, shout yeah. out. Yeah, freak. Yeah, he, w- he 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 won't admit to it, but uh, yeah, he may be. So, <laughs> well, cool, dude. Well, thank you. I, I know we had this problem on the first trip. Like, how do we end this? I got to really go. Peace and love, freaks. There you go. And I got on a roll for a while, so we'll just do it again. Where I was ending every podcast is we'll be back next week with great achievements and energy finance by really short people. And <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I posted a meme uh, today that actually has Colin McClellan frack slap coming into the bathroom, standing up on a stool to pee next to me. And it says, will you please stop making fun of me? So yeah, <laughs> of course that wasn't directed at you, Colin. Ah, uh, that's incredible. For your right, Mark. I'm, I'm very average. I have an average height. <laughs> That's actually the really the funniest part about it is Colin's like 5'10 or 5'11. So he's not really short, but just <laughs> this is taking on a life of its own. So Chuck, thank you. It's been great. I can't wait to absolutely. Do it again. Yeah, no, absolutely. We'll uh we'll come back after I've got my mining operations set up and uh Bitcoin's at 121, you know, all that. I'm with you. I'm a believer now. We'll be back. It won't be too long between podcasts, though. Sorry for 
inviting myself on a future episode, but I tend to do that. Yeah, that sounds good. 